Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Friends, let's get ready for another awesome case. We are so excited to be joined by cardiology fellows and colleagues from MUSC Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. I'd like to welcome to the show Drs. Sam Powell, Carson Keck, and Ishan Shah. You guys, really excited to learn from you today. Would you tell the audience who you are? Hey, y'all. I'm Carson. I'm originally from a small town in North Georgia. I went to college in Atlanta at Georgia Tech. And then I did my med school a little further south in Georgia at Mercer. I moved to Charleston for residency at MUSC. I stayed on last year for a chief year and then never wanted to leave. So I stayed for a fellowship that I started this year, a current first year cardiology fellow. Hey, everyone. My name is Sam Powell. I'm one of the second year fellows here at MUSC. And I'm actually originally from Charleston. I went to Clemson University in the upstate of South Carolina for undergrad, came back here for med school. I went to VCU for my residency, stayed on there for a chief year as well, and then came back home again for cardiology fellowship. I just can't stay away. Hey, everyone. I'm Yishan Shah. I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows. I'm one of the co-chiefs. I did my internal medicine residency at UVA. I'm planning to do general cardiology in the future. Sam, Ishan, Carson, it is such a pleasure to have you guys on the podcast today. We are so thrilled to hear about this case. Before we get started, we got to have the perfect scene for this. So why don't you guys take us to somewhere in Charleston for where we can discuss this awesome case today? I think we could all agree that the best place that we commonly go to to discuss a case like this is the amazing view that we have from our children's hospital cafeteria. It's the tower right next to our cardiovascular tower. It overlooks the fantastic Charleston Harbor. It's one of the great places in our hospital to sit and reflect and enjoy all the beautiful scenes of the city. Guys, that sounds absolutely gorgeous. And I, I haven't been to Charleston before, but I'm taking a look at it on the map and it's just right on the water. It looks like the setup is gorgeous and I can't wait to hang out with you guys here with the Bay View. And I just have to say, I'm realizing that right now I am among greatness with three chiefs from MUSC and a former chief with current. So I'm just excited to sit back, relax and enjoy the ride. Take us through your case. All right. So we're going to start off. This was a patient that was referred to us for uh, dyspnea on exertion in the outpatient setting. So she is a 
51-year-old female. She has a history of coronary disease. The details of her coronary history are not completely clear, but she had a two-vessel coronary bypass with a Lima to LAD and a vein graft to the diagonal in 2006. The Lima graft subsequently became a tretic and the vein graft was occluded, so she ended up having a stent placed in both the LAD and the diagonal branches. Uh, she also has a history of exercise-induced pulmonary arterial hypertension and is on a pulmonary vasodilator. And she also has a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia. She was referred to us for evaluation of exertional dyspnea. Uh, she initially developed this several years ago, and she was diagnosed with exercise-induced uh, pH at an outside hospital. Uh, she was started on a pulmonary vasodilator and actually had some improvement of symptoms. However, she has now developed this progressive dyspnea for the past several months to the point that she becomes short of breath with just minimal exertion. She also has some occasional chest pressure associated with these symptoms, and these symptoms typically go away with rest. Uh, before the recent worsening of symptoms, uh, she was exercising three times a week and lifting weights without any dyspnea. Along with this, she's also noted some abdominal distension and fatigue but otherwise she denies any other symptoms. Uh, specifically, no orthopnea, no paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, lower extremity edema, weight gain, palpitations, or presyncopal or syncopal symptoms. Thanks, Ishan. That was a great start, and I feel like this bodes well for uh, the case we're about to hear as we go along. But quick clarifying question, we probably don't know this at this point, but do we know what the etiology of her exercise-induced pH was. And just for the audience, if you are concerned about pulmonary hypertension and resting pressures are not elevated, then exercising a patient, increasing the cardiac output can increase the pressures and help you make the diagnosis. And of course, this is a dynamic process, right? Many patients' symptoms are exercise-induced, dyspnea on exertion, and so they may only have a problem with exercising. However, the etiology of the underlying pulmonary hypertension can still be any one of the five groups of pulmonary hypertension. And so I'm wondering if at this point, do we know what the etiology is of her pulmonary hypertension? Yeah. So from reviewing her prior workup, we do not know the exact etiology. She had a extensive rheumatological workup, which was negative. Uh, she did not have any signs of left heart dysfunction. She doesn't have any pulmonary parenchymal disease. So we do not know the exact etiology of her exercise-induced pH. So there was an absolute wealth of information there, Ishan. And just to clarify, the dyspnea that she's presenting with, is it different than prior episodes of dyspnea for her? Because you're describing in predominantly right heart symptoms here. And I know you guys will probably go into this further, but you're describing someone that's having abdominal distension, exercise intolerance. You're describing not significant orthopnea. And I'm just wondering if this has been a change in the past and if we have to evaluate for a different process this time around. So the symptoms are pretty similar to when she was initially diagnosed with exercise-induced pH and they had resolved, but they have recurred in the past several months and have progressively gotten worse at this point. And just before we move forward, because Ahmed mentioned that we can have any etiology of pulmonary hypertension occur with patients that are having exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension, I think it's a good moment to just take a brief step back to just identify what the groups of pulmonary hypertension are. And when we talk about them, we're talking about the World Health Organization classifications, and specifically the five groups. And when we talk about group one, we're talking about pulmonary arterial hypertension, things like portal pulmonary hypertension, idiopathic. When we think about group two, we're thinking about pulmonary hypertension that's induced by left-sided heart disease, like HEF-PEF, 
or valvular heart disease, group three being caused by lung disease, group four, the CTEP diagnosis, chronothromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And for more information on that, we can go back to one of our prior episodes with Temple. And then group five being pulmonary hypertension due to blood or other disorders. So Sean, do you want to continue with the case? Yeah, thanks, Karen, for going over those groups. So to round out her history, in terms of surgical history, she's had the coronary bypass and then a cholecystectomy. She does not have any other significant past medical history. The medications she's on, she's on an aspirin, metoprolol, um, succinate, gravastatin, uh, spironolactone, PRN, Lasix, uh, Tadalafil, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor for her exercise-induced pH as well. She does not have any significant family history. She does not smoke or use any illicit substances. She has an occasional glass of wine, and she does not have any environmental or occupational risk factors for pulmonary disease. I'm going to jump right into her initial physical exam when she came into the clinic to see us. So her vitals in clinic were essentially unremarkable initially. Her heart rate was uh, 73. Uh, Blood pressure was 122 over 80. Oxygen saturation was 98% on room air. Uh, She weighed about 199 pounds and her BMI was 32. Going into her exam a little bit more, so her cardiac exam, she was regular rate and rhythm. She had a soft one out of six holosystolic murmur. It was heard best at the left lower sternal border, and then it was more prominent with inspiration. She did not have any rubs or gallops. Her jugular venous pulse was very prominent with large V waves. Her lungs were clear to auscultation. She had mild abdominal distension, but no ascites was felt. And then she did not have any lower extremity edema. So I'm going to ask Carson to jump in here and see what her initial thoughts are based upon this presentation and what's on the differential for her. Thanks, Ishan. So yeah, dyspnea is obviously a very broad topic for a differential. So I like to think about it in a few different categories. So cardiac causes, such as angina and coronary artery disease, particularly given her history of a bypass surgery in the past, heart failure, either diastolic or systolic, valvular heart disease, which may be relevant in our patient given the history of her murmur that you described on exam, and arrhythmia, although this seems a little bit less likely. There's also pulmonary causes, including worsening pulmonary hypertension, particularly since she has a prior diagnosis. You can also think about obstructive lung disease, parenchymal lung disease, and vasculature diseases such as vasculitis or pulmonary embolism. Since we're all cardio nerds here, I think this is likely a cardiac cause. I think it's probably a safe bet that the heart is involved in this case. With her history of coronary disease, I am definitely concerned about this being an anginal equivalent. She does certainly has risk factors for left heart dysfunction, uh, but she doesn't have the other classic symptoms of left-sided heart failure like orthopnea or PND. And the murmur on exam does raise the question for valvular heart disease. Her exam findings are consistent with tricuspid regurgitation. So the TR murmur can be hard to hear because of the low right-sided pressures. But classically, it will be a holosystolic murmur that's heard best at the left lower sternal border. And it will typically increase in intensity with inspiration, which usually promotes increased venous return. And then the V waves in the IJ are indicative of the large regurgitant volume. We don't understand the course and progression of exercise and use pH well, but with her history of this, pH is certainly in the differential as well. Uh, So based on all this, what's the next steps you want to do? So I think I'd like to start with an EKG to look for signs of ischemia or arrhythmia, basic labs, including a CBC to rule out anemia, thyroid studies, a BMP to look for any evidence of volume overload, 
and a B impedolic for acidosis. I also think we should probably get an echo to better evaluate the left ventricle, both for systolic and diastolic function, valvular function, and estimate her pulmonary pressures. Finally, given her history and risk factors, I think we should also go ahead and get an ischemic evaluation with a left heart cath. I agree, Carson. Uh, EKG is always a great place to start. So her EKG shows normal sinus rhythm, there's normal axis, and there are normal STT segments without any ischemic changes. The basic labs, including CBC, a renal function, and hepatic functional panel were unremarkable, and the BNP was within normal limits as well. Her chest x-ray uh, was unremarkable. Her cardiac silhouette was not enlarged, and the pulmonary fields were clear as well without any consolidations. Because of her extensive coronary disease history, I think the, a left heart cath is appropriate. She had one, and that showed that LAD stent was widely patent. Her diagonal stent was occluded, uh, but there were collaterals supplying this area. Otherwise, there was no significant coronary disease. LVEDP during the cath was 15. And Sean, so far, you know, all of the results are impressively unimpressive, right? I mean, you don't have anemia, you don't have visceral organ dysfunction like kidney disease or liver injury, pronaturatic peptide is normal, so it doesn't seem like you have sort of cardiac distension. The chest x-ray is normal, so you're not, you don't have frank pulmonary edema, but of course, people with chronic heart failure, uh, you can have a disconnect there. And even her coronary angiogram didn't show coronary obstructions. And uh, just two questions as we go through the case. One is, what is the context that we're in right now? Like, is this a patient who showed up to the ED with dyskinesia exertion and we're saying, look, she looks ill. We have to admit her, get a coronary angiogram within the next day and figure it out. Or is this somebody who showed up to clinic and we're doing this evaluation in a stepwise uh, methodical way over a period of days to weeks? And, uh, and the second question is, I'm just curious what, you know, what, what we'll do from here, because so far everything's been pretty unimpressive. And I, I guess we'll probably end up going to Carson's thought of getting an echocardiogram. Yeah, so we actually saw this patient in clinic, and given that the chronicity of her symptoms, all of this workup was done as an outpatient over the uh, span of uh, several weeks. So we started off initially with the basic labs, and then we had scheduled her for an outpatient coronary angiogram and uh, echocardiogram as well. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for setting the stage for us because, you know, just for the audience, I think a lot of us are used to seeing patients in the emergency room in that acute setting, thinking about the next steps. But this is a great example of uh, triage gone right, right? She comes in with a history of high risk cardiac features. You know, she's had a prior cabbage, she's had pulmonary hypertension in the past, she's on cardiac meds, but she comes in with symptoms that are stable, but concerning, you know, there's no rapid evolution over the past few hours or days. And in that context, we have time to sit back and be methodical in our assessment and evaluation. And just, you know, I applaud Carson for thinking through, this is my differential diagnosis. This is the first line testing, you know, let's get the labs, the EKG, the chest x-ray, and then let's step it up to an ischemic evaluation and maybe, you know, a window into the heart with an echocardiogram. And so really great example of triage gone right in the outpatient setting for an otherwise stable patient with concerning symptoms and a concerning background. Um, what did that window into the heart show? Yeah, so I think that's a great point. You know, we get exposed to a lot of acute care in the emergency room and the ICUs on the floors, but outpatient medicine is definitely a key skill for a cardiologist. And I think this case demonstrates very well how to work up a patient in the outpatient setting as well. And I think the other point to that, Ishan, is that while we have 
develop templates in our mind of how we're going to work up dyspnea as an outpatient or inpatient, that's totally been flipped on its head and during COVID times and what we can actually organize, test how we can organize them in a timely fashion if they require a COVID test prior to it. And that makes it sometimes exceedingly difficult to try to organize things in a way that gets a patient a diagnosis in a timely fashion. So again, I applaud Carson and your whole team here for thinking through this uh, very thoroughly and putting together a workup that meets a patient's needs, diagnosis, and helps them get to a timely fashion. I'm also interested to see what this echocardiogram shows. Yeah, so let's uh, dive into it. So her echocardiogram showed that her left ventricular systolic function was normal and there were no regional wall motion abnormalities. There was normal diastolic function. The right-sided chambers were mildly dilated. There was mild right atrial and right ventricular dilation. Uh, There was mild right ventricular systolic dysfunction, and there was moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation, and there was some evidence of some malcoaptation of the tricuspid valve leaflets. The estimated RVSP uh, was mildly elevated at 40. Carson, what are your thoughts based upon the findings of the workup we've done so far, and does this help you narrow your differential? Yeah, Sean, I think it does. So based on the workup that we have, she had a diagonal lesion on her left heart cath with collateral flow. So I think that tells us it's unlikely that coronary artery disease is the culprit for her symptoms. With a normal BNP and LVEDP, left heart failure, at least at rest, seems a little bit less likely, and we still have no evidence of arrhythmia. I am now concerned that tricuspid regurgitation is contributing to her symptoms, but we can't forget she does have that history of exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension, which could also be contributing to her dyspnea as well, particularly in the setting of the elevated RVSP on her echocardiogram. I think that's spot on. Given the right-sided chamber enlargement with significant TR, I think RV dysfunction, TR, whether it's primary or secondary, and pulmonary hypertension are certainly higher on my differential. Although we cannot rule it out at this point, I don't think we'll be able to blame our usual suspect, the left side of the heart. But at MEOC, we give equal love to both sides of the heart and all valves. So we certainly will pay close attention to the RV and tricuspid valve. I love that. We're not going to be forgetting that forgotten ventricle or this forgotten valve. Uh, Sean and Carson and Sam there as well. I just am intrigued by this echocardiogram and what your thoughts are in interpreting an RVSP in the setting of moderate to severe TR. Because we know that when we have moderate to severe TR, the RVSP, the RV systolic pressure, which we estimate through modified Bernoulli's equation, can be underestimated because that velocity of that TR may not be as great if the pressures between the RV and the RA equalize quickly. So I wonder how that informed your thought process or informed your next steps. I think that's a great point, Kern. So the the degree of uh, TR can certainly change quite a bit based upon the volume status uh, of the patient. And then uh, using the TR velocity to estimate the RVSP, it can certainly underestimate it in this scenario. And that's why it's just a preliminary look into her pulmonary pressures. As we'll go into later, I think we'll need more definitive evaluation to get a sense of what her pulmonary pressures truly are. So talking about TR, let's see if we can get Sam to teach us a little bit about evaluation of TR on ECHO and whether these features were present for our patients as well. Sam, are you still with us? 
Yes, Ishan, I'm still here, just still enjoying this amazing view here in Charleston outside of our patio here. Uh, but I think that's a great question. There are actually several findings on our patient's echo that are pretty good examples for us to use. But before we talk too much about that, I think there's some important things to remember here. And one of those is that typically when we're dealing with chronic TR, a lot of times there hasn't been a lot of adaptive changes present on echo for us to see acute severe TR. So for the purpose of this discussion, a lot of the findings we'll discuss are those of severe chronic TR. That being said, there are actually several important findings that I think we should talk about first. And one of the best ways to think about this, I think, is how the ASE tends to break things down. And that's into structural, qualitative, semi-quantitative, and quantitative echo findings. So structural findings are probably the easiest for us to think about. And that's because this is literally thinking about things that are visually apparent on the echo that could be the result of either uh, severe TR or right heart dysfunction from severe TR. These would be things like severe valvular or leaflet abnormalities. So think about flailing, tethering, or perforations, dilations in the RV or RA, or even dilations in the IVC itself. The qualitative findings are a bit like what they say about beauty. It's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. This is because it relies on the echo reader's ability to correctly interpret the Doppler findings that they're seeing visually in front of them. For this, we would look for things like a large central regurgitant jet. Uh, remember, this can be eccentric, and you might not see it in all views, so you really have to be thorough. A large flow convergence that can continue throughout systole. And then finally, this dense, sometimes they'll say dagger-shaped, triangular, continuous wave Doppler jet. The triangular shape here is an easy one to think about, I think, because it's basically a sign that there's so little valve that's competent enough to, back, to block the backwards flow of blood into the right atrium that it moves very quickly and equalizes very quickly into the right ventricle, like we described before. There are a lot of different semi-quantitative and quantitative measures of TR severity that have been described. We won't go too deep down the rabbit hole here to describe all of them. Uh, some of them tend to be a bit granular, and we would really need the whole session just to talk about this to, to really adequately discuss it. In general, though, some of the things that you can measure on Doppler would be a large vena contractive greater than 0.7 centimeters, a PISA radius, which most of us are probably most familiar with in the context of mitral regurgitation, of greater than 0.9 centimeters squared, an EROA of greater than 0.4 centimeters squared, and a regurgitant volume of greater than 45 milliliters. Again, exactly how these measurements are made are a little bit outside the context of our discussion, but I think it's worth remembering that all of this essentially goes back to the basic ideas that severe tricuspid regurgitation generally involves larger amounts of flow or larger amounts of volume and originating from a larger area of the valve. One of the final things that I think is important to discuss is actually one of my favorites, and that's because it's super easy to see and it's actually super easy to overlook too. So every good echo assessment of severe TR should include Doppler flow if hepatic veins. If there is systolic flow reversal of hepatic veins, meaning blood is flowing backwards away from the heart and into the hepatic veins, it also can be a sign of severe TR. We have some great representative images that go along with this case that we've included with our online content. And I think as we go back to look at our patient, there are actually several things to point out that may be a sign of severe TR here. In terms of structure, it is difficult to see all of the leaflets in great view, which is common in a surface study, but it does seem like there is some degree of poor leaflet coaptation. The RV and RA do seem a little bit dilated in some of these views, and the Doppler views of the regurgitation show a large area of convergence with a CW that does look pretty dagger-shaped. And then finally, my favorite, there is some degree of systolic flow reversal in hepatic veins, suggestive of severe TR. So Carson, I definitely think we're dealing with some degree of severe TR here, and I think the next big question would be to ask, why would this patient have severe TR? Just briefly, before we move on to Carson, Sam, that was just an amazing breakdown of the echo findings of severe TR. And I know 
for me personally, the forgotten valve getting this much attention on the Cardio Nerds podcast is just making my heart flutter. So I thank you for breaking down that wonderful echo criteria of severe TR. And just to add to it very briefly, you know, sometimes when we see the continuous wave signal of severe TR, the anterograde and the retrograde flows may be mirror images of each other and sometimes can be a finding of severe TR. I'm really excited to hear the next steps. So here at MUSC, we definitely don't forget about the tricuspid valve. So when we think about tricuspid regurgitation or really any valvular disease, we can break it down into two broad categories. First is going to be primary, which includes acquired causes like rheumatic disease, endocarditis, radiation damage, trauma, or drug-related, such as with ergot alkaloids or dopamine agonists, iatrogenic causes with pacemaker leads or after an endomyocardial biopsy, and congenital causes. But the larger and more common category is secondary or functional TR, which accounts for about 90% of all TR. So this includes both left-sided pathology with pulmonary hypertension. So in these patients, we'll have increased left-sided pressures, which will cause pulmonary hypertension which then increases your RV afterload, causing RV remodeling. This can be seen in about a fourth of all patients with severe MR and a little under half of all patients with aortic disease. You can also have right-sided pathology with pulmonary hypertension, which includes idiopathic pulmonary hypertension and lung disease. You can also have a papillary muscle displacement with leaflet malcoaptation after an inferior MI. It is much less common and only more recently recognized, but you can also have isolated TR, which occurs in elderly patients with a high prevalence of atrial fibrillation that causes right atrial and tricuspid annular dilation without significant RV remodeling. But since we still don't know exactly what's going on in our patient, I think a right heart cath would be really helpful to help us determine if this is functional TR in the setting of pressure overload or primary TR without any evidence of pressure overload. Yeah, Carson, I couldn't agree more. And that was a great breakdown of the causes of TR. And I agree that, you know, if I only hear the words TR, then nine times out of 10, quite literally, 90% is going to be functional TR or secondary to extravalvular problems. And just thinking about it from a mechanistic standpoint, it's because of an imbalance of closing and tethering forces. So stepping back, just to think about what the tricuspid valve is supposed to do, like other valves, it's just a trap door. In diastole, it should become wide open to let blood flow through this low pressure system without any blockages, right? And so if you have a problem with that, you get tricuspid stenosis. And then in systole, it should close with good fidelity to prevent any back leak of blood. Now, any degree of TR is extremely common. And most TR is, again, functional TR. So you can think of closing forces that help the tricuspid valve close and tethering forces that pull the leaflets towards the ventricles and prevent the valve from closing properly. And this is a concept that's very similar to the mitral valve. And so increased tethering forces could be from RV dilation, papillary muscle displacement, RV dyssynchrony, annular dilation. Um, And then decrease of closing forces can be things like decreased RV contractility, increased RV dyssynchrony, increased right atrial pressure, and decreased tricuspid annular contraction because we think that the annulus itself has a recoil properties. And so you have an imbalance of these features that can lead to functional TR. And the pathology, just like you outlined, could be annular dilation from RA pathology, which could be seen in the context of you know, severe diastolic dysfunction, like restrictive heart disease and RA dilation. It could be seen from an atrial myopathy, or probably most commonly is atrial fibrillation. And then from the RV side, you can think about three major buckets that can cause, in the long term, RV dilation and functional TR. 
One is chronic pressure overload, so any one of those causes of pulmonary hypertension. And of course, the most common cause of RV dysfunction is LV dysfunction, uh, causing group 2 pulmonary hypertension. So that's pressure overload. The second would be volume overload, which can be from shunt defects or tricuspid regurgitation itself. And in this way, TR begets more TR. And the third big bucket is RV myocardial disease, like an RV infarct or RV myopathy from ARVC or something along those lines. And so these are all important considerations. Right now, all we know is that there is moderate to severe, perhaps severe tricuspid regurgitation, and we need to go to the next steps to figure out one, how severe is it? Two, what is the etiology? And three, how can we fix it? So uh, I agree that right heart cath and maybe more imaging can be really helpful, especially because the right side is notoriously poorly evaluated on an echocardiogram. And so more advanced, perhaps cross-sectional imaging for even a transesophageal echo could be additive in this way. So what did the right heart cath show? I think that was a great review of tricuspid valve physiology. And as you said, um, a majority of the cases of TR are secondary, and she certainly has risk factors for that with her coronary disease. Uh, She has risk factors for left-sided dysfunction. With her history of pulmonary hypertension, this could be secondary to that as well. So at this point, uh, we did uh, schedule her for a outpatient right heart cath. And given our concern for exercise-induced pH, we actually decided to do an invasive cardiopulmonary exercise test, which will be ideal to figure out the exact etiology of her exercise intolerance. To go into a little bit about an invasive CPET, uh, this is where we do hemodynamic assessment while you exercise on a recumbent bike, and you do continuous measurement of oxygen consumption to figure out the exact etiology of what's going on. Uh, This is a challenging procedure to do technically and interpret, uh, but luckily we have experts uh, that are well-versed in this type of testing. One of the main reasons we did a invasive CPET was to accurately measure the cardiac output via the direct FIC method, and we'll review shortly why it is so important to have precise cardiac output measurements in a bit. We generally use the thermodilution and indirect FIC method for cardiac output calculation at rest, but indirect FIC cannot be used during exercise because it uses estimated values for oxygen consumption. Uh, Direct FIC with uh, real-time measurement of oxygen consumption is the gold standard to figure out the cardiac output. Because of the technical challenges of direct FIC measurement, or if this type of testing is not available, uh, thermodilution is a reasonable alternative. There was actually a recent study that suggests that thermodilution can underestimate the cardiac output during exercise compared to direct FIC method. While we're talking about cardiac output calculation, just a quick side note. You know, it is commonly cited that thermodilution is not accurate in the setting of significant TR. There was a recent study in 2019 that actually compared thermodilution and indirect FIC cardiac output measurements to direct FIC. And there was actually a good correlation between thermodilution and direct FIC, even in the setting of severe TR. Here are the findings of the right heart cath. So we'll go through this sequentially. Initially, we'll go through the resting numbers. And of note, we did ask the patient uh, to stop her Tadalafil three days prior to the test to get a better assessment of her uh, pulmonary pressures. So to dive into it, so her RA pressure was eight, and there were prominent Y descents. There was a positive Kuzmal sign with markedly accentuated Y descents with inspiration on the RA tracing. RV was 28 over 5. 
The PA pressures were 27 over 10 with a mean of 17. Our wedge pressure was 9 with peak V waves of 13. PA sat was 64%. Thermal dilution, cardiac output, and cardiac index were 3.3 and 1.7 respectively. Thick cardiac output and cardiac index were 3.5 and 1.7 respectively. Uh, The PVR calculated to 2.7 wood units. Now, Ishan, the right atrial pressure was 8 and there were prominent wide descents, but were there accentuated V waves in the RA pressure tracing? That's a good question. So the RA tracing did show that she had prominent V waves along with the prominent wide descents as well. And we'll shortly go into what the significance of that could be. So Sam, what are your impressions of these hemodynamics at rest? And do you want to tell us a little bit about the criteria for diagnosis of resting pulmonary hypertension? Uh, yeah, thanks, Ishan. I'd, I'd love to talk some more about this. So uh, as we've kind of mentioned a little bit, we are a high volume transplant center here at MUSC, and we certainly see our fair share of right heart casts every day. But I think this would be a good moment to take a step back and review what we know about right heart cath values and about pulmonary hypertension. So like many things in the world of medicine, the key to making a good diagnosis based on a right heart cath is to first recognize what normal looks like. So in this case, that means what does normal look like at rest? Now, keep in mind that depending on what source you look at, you might find some slightly different values of what normal is, but generally they all tend to converge around a similar mean. Right heart cath measurements will typically begin, as we know, in the right atrium, with normal values being around 0 to 7. You next advance into the right ventricle, you find normal values of around 15 to 25 over 3 to 12. Remember here, a key can be that in normal circumstances with normal hemodynamics, an RV diastolic pressure will roughly approximate your right atrial pressure too. You then move into the pulmonary arteries where normal systolic pressures will be around 15 to 25 over around 8 to 15 diastolic with a mean of around 10 to 22. Now, there are a couple of tricks to performing what I'll call the right right heart cath that are worth mentioning here. Most importantly, it's like one of those old sayings, how do you get to be first chair in the New York Philharmonic? It's practice. So a lot of the recognition and interpretation of right heart cath waveforms comes from practice. So volume matters, in other words. For our patient in particular, it would be important to remember the essential waveform elements to the right atrium, those being A, C, X, V, and Y where A is an atrial systole reflection, C is a reflection of tricuspid valve closure, the X descent is the fallen atrial pressure following systole, V is ventricular systole coinciding with atrial diastole, and the Y descent is a fallen atrial pressure when the tricuspid valve reopens. Now, as we've mentioned before, our patient does have some tall V waves, which can be important to remember as this can be also a, a sign of severe TR, both in the acute and chronic settings. Another easy thing to look for in this case would be the Kuzmal sign, which we've already mentioned. Now, this is a great tool to use during any right heart cath, and it's really easy to perform. So basically, all you need to do is measure a right atrial pressure during inspiration. If there's an increase or at least a lack of fall in right atrial pressure with inspiration, this is a positive Kuzmal sign, and it can be a sign of a non-compliant RV, and that's useful in making the diagnosis of things like constrictive pericarditis, advanced heart failure, and restrictive cardiomyopathies. Finally, for our patient, it's important to remember what the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension at rest is on a right heart cath. Again, there's been a lot of different literature out there citing this, and different sources will lead you to different values, but generally, pulmonary hypertension exists when there's a mean PA pressure of greater than around 20 to 25 millimeters of mercury, which again, our patient did not have. You should also remember to look for pulmonary capillary wedge pressure as well. Uh, A normal pressure is around 6 to 16 millimeters of mercury, depending on which set of guidelines you look at. 
And this, in, in a way, is to help determine if there's any degree of pre- or post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. Remember that a wedge pressure greater than 15 is most consistent with WHO group 2 pulmonary hypertension, like we've discussed earlier, which is also pulmonary hypertension from left heart disease. If we recall, there was also some prominent Y descents that Ishan told us about and our right atrial tracing, and this can be suggestive of impaired RV filling, as well as some signs of mildly elevated RA pressures that we have talked about. This, paired with the low cardiac output that we saw, would make me a little more concerned about RV dysfunction in the absence of pulmonary hypertension. That being said, I think it would be interesting to hear a little bit more about what her exercise numbers are. Sam, that was such a great breakdown of normal right heart cath numbers and also helps us contextualize the abnormalities that we saw in this patient. And there's one point that I learned during the course of the series where I always sort of thought of uh, accentuated V waves as correlating with ipsilateral AV valve regurgitation. There were two situations where there was a disconnect. One, in the case from Mayo with constrictive pericarditis and severe MR, the V waves were not elevated. And their learning there was that if the LA, or in this case, the RA, is large and boggy and compliant, it'll just absorb that extra gush of fluid. And so you won't reflect back massive V waves. The second and the opposite situation was a patient that had incredibly accentuated V waves, up to 80 millimeters of mercury, but there was no mitral valve regurgitation. And that situation, again, it was the opposite, where the LA was small, stiff, calcified, and non-compliant or a coconut LA, if you will. And that was because of a stiff left atrial syndrome in the absence of severe MR. And so, you know, I think the most common reason for an elevated or accentuated V waves or prominent V waves are probably AV valve regurgitations. But these two caveats are useful to keep in mind. And the second point is that a lot of the features that you were mentioning can be seen in constrictive pericarditis, but a lot of these features just reflect pericardial restraint. And pericardial restraint could be either because the pericardium itself is calcified and non-compliant and directly constraining the heart, or in the opposite circumstance, it could be because the heart itself is dilated, full of fluid, and is pushing up against normal pericardium. And I think either way, you'll see similar signs. And so it's very helpful to think that, you know, is it because of the pericardium or is it because of an abnormality within the heart, like severe TR, for instance? So it's uh, great to see all these nuances. Um, and I think that's a wonderful point. And Sam, Ishan, and Carson, I just want to commend you guys for providing all this detail regarding the right heart cath. You know, so uh, the right heart cath is like a, a trip we take all the time in cardiology. It's like it's like going to work. You know, we know how to start. We know how to make that left turn out of our driveway. We know when there's going to be a little bit more traffic, how to maneuver around it, just like we know how to maneuver a right heart cath through some severe TR. And it can all become kind of routine. And that's my favorite part of doing a right heart cath is that it's in no way a routine study. There's so much information we can gain, whether it's looking for a wide descent or looking for small sign, calculating RV compliance or stroke work index or the pulmonary artery pulsatility index. There's so much information. And for anyone that wants more, the group from South Carolina, including Dr. Tedford, Dr. Houston, have published a wonderful article on modern right heart catheterization. It's titled Modern Right Heart Catheterization Beyond Simple Hemodynamics. It's an advances in pulmonary hypertension. We'll provide the link to it. It's an article that I keep up in my time working in the cath lab, handed to all fellows. And it's just truly, truly a marker of how skilled this institution is in evaluating pulmonary hypertension and understanding the value of invasive hemodynamics. So Sam, I'm excited to hear some more. 
Yes, I think those are all really good points. And uh, as you said, we're certainly very experienced and have some great leadership here in how to perform uh, a good right heart catheterization. Uh, so Ishan, I think it would be interesting at this point to know what were the exercise numbers and figure out what we can interpret from that. Yeah, to Kern and uh, Amit's point, we are very lucky to have these experts here. And there's an incredible wealth of information that you can get from a right heart cath. And to Amit's point, it's very important to keep in mind that you need to apply these right heart cath hemodynamics and put them, put them into clinical context for the particular patient because there can be discrepancies between the findings. So Sam, I think we can safely say that she does not have evidence of resting pulmonary hypertension based upon those resting hemodynamics. Also, her left-sided filling pressures are normal at rest, so left-sided dysfunction is less likely again as well. It does seem like she has some findings to suggest severe TR, like the large V waves on the RA tracing and the positive Kuzmol's. Um, although she did not have this, other findings that can be suggestive of severe TR are large S waves where there is a fusion of the C and the V waves on RA tracing. And there can be ventricularization of RA tracing where the RA waveform will look similar to the RV tracing. So now let's look at the exercise data to see if we can tease this out a little bit further. Um, so her hemodynamics at peak exercise were RA increased to 16 with V waves up to 31, and this is increased from 9 at rest. Her mean PA pressure was 31 compared to 17 at rest. Her wedge pressure was 16 compared to 9. PA saturation decreased to 36%. Uh, Thermodilution, uh, cardiac output, and cardiac index were 6.5 and 3.3. Uh, the direct FIC cardiac output and cardiac index were 8.7 and 4.4 compared to 3.5 and 1.7 at rest. From these values, we calculated her total pulmonary resistance to be 3.56 woods units, and the PVR was 1.72 woods units compared to 2.72 at rest. She exercised for a total of six minutes, and her peak oxygen consumption was severely reduced at 11 mils per kg per minute. So, Sam, what are your thoughts now with the changes in her hemodynamics with exercise? Yeah, this is becoming a really interesting case here. So, first of all, an exercise right heart cath can be very difficult to perform. Out of convention, we typically perform this using exercise with supine bicycle pedaling, but there are a lot of variations in that. The hemodynamic measuring can also be a challenge given the propensity for things like motion artifact, large changes in intrathoracic pressures, and catheter ringing that occurs during exercise. So it's best to take some averages over several respiratory cycles if you can. Under normal circumstances, supine exercise will result in a drop in PBR as pulmonary arteries distend and are fully recruited during exercise. Some other interesting normal findings are that the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure will frequently rise slightly at peak exercise, and that's even in healthy patients. Also, the amount of exercise the patient performs matters here. Since there is a phenomenon where early in exercise, you'll see more elevation in pressures, but a lot of times these will come down at late or peak exercise. So if you're the provider supervising this study, try to see if you can get your patient around 10 minutes of exercise if possible. With all this in mind, making the diagnosis of exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension can be really difficult if you don't know what you're looking for. During exercise, pulmonary pressures can increase simply because there's more flow during a high cardiac output state. This means that pressure alone is not a reliable way to make the diagnosis. 
Instead, it's been suggested that you use what's called the pressure cardiac output slope relationship, where a normal slope is less than three. Now, you would first start by measuring what's called the total pulmonary resistance, which can be calculated by the mean PA pressure divided by cardiac output. A normal here is around 0.5 to 3 woods units. In our patient, this came out to 3.56 woods units, which is slightly abnormal. When you make a plot, then, of the mean PA pressure and cardiac output at different stages of exercise, you can then come up with the pressure cardiac output slope that I mentioned before, which in our patient was 2.6, and that's normal. You can also use this time during your exercise right heart cath to assess for signs of HEFPEF as well by determining if there's a pulmonary capillary wedge of greater than 25 during supine exercise. So when we put all this together, we have an abnormally elevated total pulmonary resistance, but a normal pressure cardiac output slope. Otherwise, we found there is a slight increase in wedge pressure, which I mentioned can be normal during exercise, and an expected drop at peak exercise in PBR. When you put all this together, it really isn't consistent with a diagnosis of exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension. If you also recall, her wedge pressure didn't increase greater than 25 with exercise. That, along with a lack of additional findings consistent with left-sided heart dysfunction on echo, don't suggest that this is HEFPEF either. Sam, I think that really helps us answer what the primary issue is here. As you explained, the hemodynamic data is not suggestive of resting or exercise-induced pH. Just to reiterate, the pressure cardiac output relationship is key to diagnosis of exercise-induced pH, and this is why accurate cardiac output calculation via direct FIC method is so key. Also, her wedge did not increase significantly with exercise, which argues against left-sided dysfunction as well. Uh, there are a couple of key changes with exercise that likely explain her functional limitations. First, she had low resting cardiac output, and there was not a significant rise in cardiac output with exercise, which suggests limited cardiac output reserve. Second, there was a significant increase in right atrial pressure and modest elevations of pulmonary pressures and wedge pressure with exercise, which likely explains the etiology of her exertional dyspnea from pulmonary congestion. So now to understand what causes the increase in these pressures is something called the left ventricular transmural filling pressure. So this reflects LV preload independent of right heart filling and pericardial restraint. And you can calculate it by subtracting wedge minus the RA pressure. A typical LV transmural filling pressure is around 5. And in cases of LV dysfunction, this usually increases with exercise. In our patient, it was actually abnormally low to begin with at one, and it decreased to zero uh, with exercise, which suggests that right heart congestion and pericardial restraint are responsible for the elevations in pulmonary pressure and the wedge. So this pattern of hemodynamics was actually described by Dr. Borlaug's group at Mayo as being responsible for exercise intolerance in patients with severe TR. So the key findings are that with exercise, there is an increase in right-sided pressures, pulmonary pressures, and wedge. There is low cardiac output reserve with exercise. And the other interesting thing is that the LV transmural pressure decreases with exercise. And this is all in the absence of pulmonary vascular disease or left heart disease. I think Dr. Tedford will go into more detail regarding pericardial constraint in the expert section. But the thought is that chronic significant TR leads to RV dilation. At rest, the pericardium doesn't exert significant pressure, but when you exercise, there's increased venous return, there is increased TR, which causes RV dilation, 
And now the pericardium does exert pressure and pericardial restraint, which eventually leads to diastolic ventricular interaction or interdependence. And there's a septal shift towards the LV, which leads to pulmonary venous hypertension from impaired LV filling and increased wedge pressure despite a low LV preload. So because of the concern for pericardial restraint, RV dysfunction, and TR, we decided to get a cardiac MRI to better evaluate her RV function and the pericardium and to quantify the tricuspid regurgitation as well. And it showed that there was normal LV function. There was right atrial and right ventricular dilation with preserved RV function. However, there was moderate to severe TR uh, with a regurgitant volume of 41 cc's, and the pericardium appeared normal. So at this point, we felt confident that the TR was responsible for her symptoms, and we referred her to our valve team, and she was evaluated by the interventional cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery teams for a tricuspid valve intervention. So we have a lot of evidence for intervention on left-sided valvular lesions, uh, but not as much evidence for tricuspid valve intervention. So according to the 2014 ACC AHA guidelines, intervention is recommended for severe symptomatic primary or secondary TR at the time of left-sided heart surgery. And as an R patient, tricuspid valve intervention should be considered for patients who have severe primary TR that remain symptomatic despite optimal medical therapy. After discussion, since we thought that this was primary TR that was contributing to her symptoms and she was symptomatic despite being optimized, we had a discussion between the valve team, both the interventional cardiologist and the cardiothoracic surgery team, and she underwent a tricuspid valve repair with ring annuloplasty. Uh, postoperatively, when she was seen in follow-up, her symptoms had actually resolved completely and she was able to get back to doing everything that she wanted. You guys, this is incredible. And this is a decision not to be taken lightly because isolated tricuspid valve surgery just has generally poor outcomes, more complications, longer hospital duration, and a decreased durability. I suspect that a lot of that is because diagnosis is often delayed to the point of having comorbid end organ dysfunction, sort of end organ RV dysfunction, and congestive failure of the kidneys and the liver. But in this case, you guys really helped her out by making the diagnosis early using advanced multimodal diagnostics and a really nuanced approach to it invasive hemodynamics and got her to surgery before she accumulated all of these sort of end organ and a poor prognostic results of having chronic, progressive, severe, or even massive torrential TR. So this is really you know well done. And I think the threshold to send people for isolated TB surgery is fairly high, but it definitely needn't be because, you know, we know that uh, there's a poor prognosis with waiting as well. So really well done and sort of put her on a much better trajectory than she would have been in otherwise. I think that's some great points, Amit, because we had to make sure that the TR was responsible uh, for her symptoms. She had already had a, a sternotomy for her bypass surgery. So a repeat surgery was going to be high risk for her and the stakes were even higher to make sure that she would benefit uh, from this procedure. So I just want to reiterate, uh, Sean and Sam and Carson, just a really critical point that you guys made. And I'm going to be excited to hear Dr. Tedford's opinion on this. But in severe TR, the decreased exercise capacity requires an understanding of both the cardiac output reserve 
and how that impacts the LV transmural pressure. Because it's a combination of all this physiology that leads to the exercise intolerance. So I'm looking forward to the ECPR that Dr. Tedford will give a little bit later on. You know, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this case is that, as you say, that at MUSC, you don't forget the forgotten valve. And this is such an important discussion to have and raise the awareness. I think in many ways, the tricuspid valve saga will follow the trajectory of amyloid cardiomyopathy. And we know the epidemiology of amyloidosis has just completely changed over the past decade because, one, we recognized that it has a poor prognosis, and two, we have better ways of diagnosing it with advanced imaging. And probably most importantly, three, we have ways of addressing it that are effective and alter the trajectory of disease. Similarly, in the tricuspid side, you know, before we thought, okay, tricuspid valve regurgitation is so common, it probably doesn't mean too much. But one, we're recognizing that it really does portend a terrible prognosis when it's left in the severe stages. Two, it's been really challenging to characterize. And so the advancements in multimodal imaging, cross-sectional imaging, transesophageal echocardiography, especially cardiac MRI, we're better able to diagnose it, characterize it, and understand the anatomic basis. And three, especially now with the surge of transcatheter tricuspid valve intervention technologies, where we're learning ways of addressing the tricuspid valve through a variety of different mechanisms, be it leaflet coaptation, annual plasty, caval, valve implantation, or transcatheter tricuspid valve replacements. I think there's a lot of energy and excitement and innovation surrounding management approaches to the tricuspid valve. So I do imagine that over the next few years, we're going to be better and better at diagnosing it. The epidemiology will change and we'll probably diagnose it at earlier stages like you did in your patient for a better, more durable outcome. So awesome case, great discussion. I learned so much about the nuances of invasive hemodynamics and it's just a testament to the kind of work you guys do over there at MUSC. So at this point, I'd love to hear from you guys. What do you love about cardiology? Why did you decide to become a cardiologist? And what makes your hearts flutter about training at MUSC? All right. So for me personally, I always loved the cardiovascular physics and cardiology specifically is so versatile um, in that you can provide acute care. You can also practice in the outpatient and provide chronic care and really build relationships with uh, patients and then also mix it up with imaging as well. So it's a very versatile field that I was always interested in and I really wanted to pursue from undergrad and medical school. Uh, specifically for me, I decided to come to MUSC because of the people here. We have great experts in all the different fields of cardiology. And there's a great camaraderie between the fellows and the attendings and their truly invested in uh, teaching all the fellows, uh, you know, whether it's doing the perfect right heart cath with Dr. Tedford and using the yardstick to make sure that the transducer is at the perfect left atrial level or uh, doing a left heart cath with Dr. Nielsen and him drawing out the anatomy on the back table or, you know, working in the echo lab with Dr. Litwin and doing all of the hemodynamic calculations in your head. It's truly a great experience all around. And second, the experience that we get here is very excellent. We're the only transplant center in South Carolina, which leads to a very strong referral base. And we get great clinical experience in all the different fields. And we actually have a wide variety of opportunities here as well. I actually had the opportunity to 
through a global health elective in Tanzania that was sponsored by the cardiology department here at MUSC. We have a connection with a cardiac center in Tanzania, and I had the opportunity to learn about cardiovascular care in Tanzania and do teaching with the residents, students, and fellows in Tanzania as well. For me, somebody told me a long time ago some great career advice that I've always tried to reflect on, and that was, if you can think of anything that would make you happy other than being a doctor, you should probably choose that because this is a hard field, as we all know. And I've consistently asked myself that at every level of my career, and it's always been kind of the same answer for me. The opportunity, as Ishan pointed out, to see the really, truly wide variety of pathophysiology and hemodynamics that we see in cardiology and really do something that you love and to help people at the same time. That was really an opportunity that I couldn't pass up, and I've never regretted it. As far as how I came to be at MUSC, I remember this university, as I said before, I grew up here. This was back then sort of a, a cozy neighborhood hospital that had a great reputation locally. But then when I had the opportunity to come back during my application process and really hear the incredible vision that the leadership of the department, the program had for not only where they brought the university to now, but also where the trajectory is going forward. It was truly incredible to see. So I really think that under our current leadership with Dr. Judge and Dr. DeSalvo leading the department, that we're really headed for great places. And we have the opportunity here. We live in a place in Charleston, South Carolina, where it's an incredible city. People are coming to us. We have the resources and we have the right people leading the charge. Uh, so I think this is striking why the iron's hot and we get a chance to do it with some world-class leadership with some world-class attendings that we've mentioned here briefly. And all of that together makes a great learning experience. Yeah. And the warm weather and the proximity to the beach certainly helps as well. Yeah. So my reasons are a little bit differently. All throughout medical school and residency, I actually thought I wanted to do transplant hepatology. So I went through residency. We have a transplant hepatology service at MUSC and I worked on it and I love it. I think the liver is an incredible organ. The physiology and the pathophysiology is just incredible. So, and then I started my cardiology rotation and I didn't hate it for an intern on a busy service. That's kind of a big deal. And then I came back as a second year and did actually eight weeks of cardiology in a row, going from nights straight into my cardiology rotation. And we were covering the CVICU and those patients were so sick, but our attendings were incredible. They spent so much time teaching you about the hemodynamics of the PA catheters that our patient had and the pathophysiology and then watching a patient go from super sick, intubated on five or six different pressors and inotropes to getting a transplant, doing well, walking out of the hospital was just incredible. So made the transition to cardiology and then decided to stay at MUSC because of the incredible teachers that we have here. Not only are our attendings world-renowned in what they do, they are very down-to-earth, very approachable, and always looking to teach you something and help you learn so that you can become a better clinician. That's incredible, guys. And, and you get to do it all in the beautiful city of Charleston, South Carolina. So I'm just so thankful. You know, this uh, watching the sunset on the bay is absolutely gorgeous. And we got to do it all with just learning so much about invasive hemodynamics and taking care of a sick patient who's not doing better. Uh, so there's no better way to spend our evening. Thank you so much for walking us through that, teaching us, and just showing us a good time. Can't wait to come back. Thank you guys for having us. We really had a good time discussing this case with you guys as well. 
So Dr. Ryan Tedford is going to provide the eCPR segment regarding this case. He is the director of our advanced heart failure and transplant program here at MUSC. And he is also the director of the advanced heart failure and transplant fellowship. Thank you very much, Sean, for the kind introduction. And I'd just like to say that you, Carson, and Sam really did a tremendous job of uh, discussing uh, this case, which is you know highly technical and complicated. So congratulations on that. I also would like to very much say how humbled and excited I am to uh, be on Cardio Nerds broadcast for the first time. I look forward to, to many more in the future. I think there's a couple of really important take-home points from this case as, as we think about this lady who had dyspnea on exertion. First of all, the diagnosis of exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension is really a diagnosis of exclusion. And the fact that she had known left heart disease, known coronary disease, and actually had undergone a cabbage surgery was the first clue to us that something else was likely going on, especially with her negative evaluation for other causes of pulmonary hypertension. You all did a beautiful job of discussing the echo assessment of tricuspid regurgitation. I really have nothing to add to that. Here at MUSC, we truly take pride in our hemodynamic evaluation of patients. We know that a change of just one millimeter of mercury makes a difference in pulmonary hypertension of lots of treatments to offer patients and and really no treatments to offer patients. And so we really are very meticulous and careful in the cath lab, and that's true of resting right heart catheterizations as well as invasive cardiopulmonary exercise testings and vasodilator challenges. I always tell our fellows they must know what they're going to find before they actually start the case, and I think that is very important. Do your findings fit with the clinical scenario? For example, in this person with normal LV function, normal left atrial size, if you would have measured her wedge pressure at 35 millimeters of mercury, you have to say something's not right here. Did you confirm that with a wedge saturation, for example? I think with this case in particular, there were several factors that led to a misdiagnosis at another expert center. The first of that, which uh, has been touched on previously, is the way that we assess cardiac output uh, during exercise. We now know that uh, there are limitations to the use of thermodilution during exercise, and particularly at high levels of exercise, thermodilution tends to underestimate cardiac output compared to a direct thick cardiac output. And this is important as we consider those pressure flow slopes that we talked about, as falsely low cardiac output will overestimate our diagnoses. I would encourage you whenever possible to calculate a direct thick with gas exchange measures in the cath lab if you are going to exercise patients. The second point was the failure to recognize that pericardial constraint was leading to an increase in wedge and therefore an increase in pulmonary pressures. Uh, Ishan and Carson and Sam went through the different criteria that we use, both the total pulmonary resistance greater than three wood units with a mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 30, as well as the mean pulmonary artery to cardiac output slope. Now, both can be very reasonable, but again, in this situation, we had to recognize that the mean pulmonary artery pressure was actually being raised in part due to pericardial constraint, not intrinsic lung disease. And how do we really determine that? We know from work from John Tyberg uh, many years ago that we can approximate pericardial pressure through measurement of right atrial pressure. And in normal individuals, the right atrial pressure roughly equals pericardial pressure. Therefore, if we take the left-sided filling pressures, the pulmonary artery wedge pressure, and we subtract the right atrial pressure, this gives us a true LV preload. In all of you, hopefully, and myself, that is essentially equal to the wedge pressure because the right atrial pressure is near zero. But when the right atrial pressure does 
increase, then we can see a decline in that true LV transmural pressure and true LV preload. This individual had a significant impaired cardiac output reserve, and the reasons for that, of course, is twofold. We know a normal cardiac output should increase four to five times in a healthy individual. First, of course, is the regurgitant lesion, and there's a decreased forward flow, and this does contribute somewhat to a decline in your overall cardiac output. But the second issue, of course, is the development of this pericardial constraint. So as that right atrial pressure rises, we see pericardial constraint develop along with an increase in the wedge pressure, although the true LV preload is actually decreasing. So we have decreased flow through the pulmonary circulation due to that regurgitant volume, as well as a decline in LV preload due to pericardial constraint. And these factors have been very well described by the paper mentioned earlier by Barry Borlaug who describes this hemodynamic basis for symptoms in patients with tricuspid regurgitation. The final comment I'll make is that in addition to evaluating and properly measuring the pressures during the right heart catheterization, spend some time actually looking at the waveform. The team previously talked about some of the characteristic findings of both pericardial constraint as well as tricuspid regurgitation. And this individual we saw no respiratory variation on the pressure tracing from the right atrium. We saw those prominent white ascents. Essentially, this is a resting Kuzmals where there's no fall in pressure with inspiration. Now, when we look at the pulmonary circulation and the wedge pressure, we actually saw significant respiratory variation. And we see this in individuals who have high right-sided filling pressures and with the development of pericardial constraint. We can see this in patients after ventricular cyst device many times. Hopefully from the podcast today, you have come to realize that we truly do give equal love to both sides of the heart here at MUSC. I truly believe you will not find a better training program anywhere in the country. With that, I would really again like to thank the Cardio Nerds for the invitation to share our case with you. And again, look forward to future opportunities. for a message to the applicants from our program director, Dr. Daniel Judge. He is the program director of our General Cardiology Fellowship. He is also the director of the Cardiovascular Genetics Program here at MUSC, and he is world-renowned in cardiac amyloid diagnosis and management. Thanks to the CardioNerds team for the opportunity to highlight MUSC and for fitting us in prior to the match. Great job as always. I've really enjoyed your series, and it's no surprise that you've caught on as one of the top podcasts for medical education and cardiovascular disease. And thanks to Carson, Sam, and Ishan for their terrific presentation. Thanks to Ryan Tedford for pulling it together with the expert segment. You four are great examples of the terrific family of fellows and faculty in our cardiology division. This patient that was presented really highlights some of the many strengths at MUSC, particularly in heart failure and RV physiology. Let me take a few minutes to tell the listeners about our cardiology fellowship program. MUSC is the oldest medical school in the Deep South and the 10th oldest medical school in the country. We have 19 fellows in the general cardiology program with four positions in EP, three in interventional, two in advanced heart failure, and one in adult congenital heart disease. So that's a total of 29 fellowship positions in the adult cardiology division at MUSC. Our fellows work at the main MUSC hospitals as well as the adjacent Charleston Veterans Administration Hospital. We're a very busy clinical program with three years of training, which includes five months of elective time, mostly during the third year. I'd like to emphasize four good reasons for MUSC to be at the top of your list for the upcoming match. First is the outstanding clinical experience and training that you'll receive here. 
MUSC is the only academic medical hospital in South Carolina, serving a large and diverse population of patients in the Southeast U.S. We see some of the most complex and interesting patients in this part of the country, and of course, our fellows are very highly engaged in all aspects of their care. All of our general cardiology fellows have tremendous experience, easily reaching COCATS level two in all aspects of cardiovascular disease. Second on my list is the wonderful people who are here. Our faculty and fellows have great relationships and close camaraderie with comfortable interactions both personally and professionally. The fellowship hosts a yearly retreat during which time most of the fellows get together for around four days, often in a ski resort or wherever they choose. The goals are to include team building, work-life balance, and wellness. My wife and I host at least one large party at our house on James Island yearly, and there are other combined fellow and faculty social events through the year. Annalee Adams, NBA, is an outstanding coordinator for all of these programs. Third on my list is the terrific research. It was one of the reasons for my moving here in 2017 because of longstanding collaborations that I've had with several MUSC faculty members. We offer our fellows extensive opportunities to work with mentors spanning the spectrum of basic to clinical cardiovascular research and a full range of cardiovascular disease areas. We've had a continuously funded T32 training grant since 1977, which also provides more dedicated time for research for those who choose that pathway. And of course, there's the unbeatable location. Charleston, South Carolina is well recognized as one of the top places in the country to live. We're on the coast with several gorgeous beaches within 10 to 15 miles from the hospital. We have four seasons. Spring, of course, starts in February, and the colder weather doesn't really kick in until late November, so it's a short winter, uh, really long, wonderful spring and fall. And the summers are cooler here than many places further inland as the Atlantic Ocean moderates things on the coast. I'm proud of our well-established Women in Cardiology program, which includes the female fellows and faculty in both adult and pediatric cardiology. And I'm also glad to point out that MUSC is strongly committed to diversity, as demonstrated by our health profession's Higher Education Excellence and Diversity Award last year, and by our ranking in the 97th percentile for medical schools based on the number of African-American graduates. Outstanding clinical experience, wonderful people, cutting-edge research, and an unbeatable location. Come for the education and stay for the lifestyle. Check out our website and our video that's embedded on that website. Follow us on Twitter at MUSC Card Fellows, or just take a vacation and visit. Thanks. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.